I'm going to say four words to you, and in your mind, I want you to imagine um, kind of a news item on the BBC, okay? And uh, what kind of news would include this sort of vocabulary? So four words. The four words are, okay, from this passage, evil, astonished, pervert, and condemned. Okay, you can imagine Bill and Sean on the, uh, the sofa of BBC Breakfast. The news items are kind of coming out. Uh, and the strength of that language will be found in what kind of news item? Can you imagine right now? Evil, astonished, pervert, uh, and condemned. We use that kind of language very, very sparingly, don't we? Uh, it would be reserved for the most atrocious the most violent, the most abusive kind of news on the television. Why? Well, because we don't like to offend. Um, And actually, offence is so easily taken, isn't it, these days? Language like this is thought of as kind of judgmental, isn't it? Um, And even damaging to the individual concerned. We unleash it only on a few people. Uh, who have kind of plumbed the depths of depravity. And on the whole, though, um, what you see on the BBC, the the language that's used in our society, we like to peddle a kind of a tolerance, don't we? But a particular understanding of what tolerance is. It's very British, isn't it? To agree to disagree. That's the kind of tolerance we see around us. Many think it's the ultimate good of the British culture. Tony Blair was very keen on it in his his last term, uh, term as a prime minister. But what does that kind of tolerance practically look like? What does it mean for each of us? Well, I guess firstly, tolerance in our society means trying not to kill your neighbour, you know, trying to live, you know, and not want to you know, hang the person who annoys you at work. It's trying to live peaceably with one another. That's what we understand as being tolerant. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you're fine with that, aren't you? That's absolutely no problem. Uh, the Bible commands that, it encourages it, and it exemplifies it in the Lord Jesus and his apostles. No problem. We try to seek peace with people of all differing opinions, all differing world faiths and world views. But we live in what many people describe as postmodern Britain, and we live amongst many who expect a different form of tolerance in this kind of melting pot uh, of, of worldviews and, and faiths. Therefore, you'll, you'll hear people say things like this. You are right, and we are right. Your position, your faith, is equally valid and equally true to my position and my faith. Uh, but you will know, if you think about that, that that is really nonsense, isn't it? See, you might have a friend, you work next to him, uh, right in the desk beside you, and he declares himself to be an atheist. Can he be equally right and equally true to you? No, because as an atheist, he denies the very existence of God, whereas you believe you have a personal relationship with God. You cannot both be equally right and equally true, but that is the kind of tolerance that the culture in which we live in encourages 
See, we cannot agree, can we, with another ideology or worldview when it is intellectually opposed to our own. Now, it doesn't negate the fact we must be peaceable. It doesn't matter. You can agree, disagree, but it doesn't mean you want to jump over your desk and punch him. But I think we really struggle with this. Because such thinking, such tolerance is kind of the expected norm. We live in a city where it's not just okay to to think like that. It's actually pushed upon us. You must think like this. We're to be tolerant, even if that undermines our intelligence and our faith. But the problem is, you see, as I said, if Christians are right, then if you think about everything else, if the Bible is right, if that is truth, then... Our Muslim friends, our Jewish friends, our Hindu friends, our atheist friends, our agnostic friends, they are wrong. (coughs) We don't say that arrogantly. We want to be at peace with them. And they would equally say the same to us. They both cannot be true. And here's where it gets, I think, quite sensitive, and we struggle with this. For too often, I think we become quite neutral in our culture. We become like an ideological Switzerland, if you like. You know, we confuse peaceable gentleness with a kind of spineless whimpering. In our attempts to remain peaceable, we take on this kind of postmodern tolerance. In our minds, we say to ourselves things like this. Well, it's okay if my Muslim, uh, my, my neighbour is, uh, is a Muslim. I, I'm going to leave them alone. I, I respect them and, and it's okay. I'll, I'll leave them. And it's okay if my, if my colleague is a, is a Jew or, 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 or maybe a, an atheist. I respect them. I'll just keep quiet about our differences. Now, should Christians, if you're a Christian here today, Should you think like that? Well, Paul says no. And you can see his example. I'll give you an example of it. In Acts chapter 17, when he enters the Areopagus, he's in Athens. Did he just walk in and say to the guys, I see your idolatry, I respect it, but, but I'm going to stand back and, and remain quiet about it. No. You just keep on worshipping your idols, you Jews and you Greeks. No. no, he didn't say that. Was it say he was greatly distressed? And he, he was greatly distressed, that his, to put it into our language, that, that, that his neighbour was worshipping Allah rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was greatly distressed that his his colleague denied the very existence of God who he loved and had given his life to. Was he peaceable? Yes, of course he was. He was tolerant in that way. Was he ideologically neutral? No. He was greatly distressed. That is, his tolerance didn't extend to that kind of postmodern London tolerance, which says, you know, you are right, we are right, we're all right together. It sounds like um, that musical, doesn't it? Disney thing. No, I'm not going to start singing at this point. But, you know, it says we're all equally true. We're all equally right. But that kind of tolerance is all around us. And therefore, the problem is, even now, you may be sat here and you, you, you say, well, this all sounds very strong, Andy, and, 
I'm not sure. I feel, I feel quite suspicious of anyone who, who speaks in such a black and white way. But it's clear as you begin looking at this short letter to the Galatians, you can see that the author of his letter, Paul, he clearly did not think as we so often do in our culture. Galatians is, if you've read it through, very, very black and white. Just look how Paul speaks about those who hold a different view to him and teach their different view. Just at those words I picked up, you know, he's astonished that people would follow them. They pervert the truth, he says. And Paul concludes, it's shocking, verse 8 and 9, isn't it? They will be eternally condemned, he says. He says it twice. And please don't think, but by the way, because I know what I was like when I was reading this. I was going, oh, that's an initial outburst. He'll calm down. He'll back off a little bit. No. You wait. I mean, why don't you flick onto it? Chapter 5, verse 12. It is probably the most shocking verse in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, and he's there now going to say about the false teachers who were encouraging at this point circumcision. And we'll come to more about what they were adding to the gospel in later weeks. But look what he says about circumcision. I'm not going to read it now, but you can. But he says, why don't you go a bit further? I mean, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? He cannot tolerate the kind of teaching that drags away people from hearing the f- about the free grace that is on offer through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally, a bit of an aside, don't try and drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul. So many people have tried to do it. If you think, oh, Paul's the black and white, he's the, he's the tough one, and Jesus was the kind of gentle parable teaching man. No. Clearly you haven't read the parables. Because the majority of them are about, about judgment. Jesus was equally black and white in that way. But how then are we going to read this kind of language? What possesses anyone to speak with kind of such strength as he does in these opening verses? Paul reacts as he does because he knows what's at, at stake here. In the churches that he's established, in the churches that he absolutely loves, this is not a disagreement over something you know, so petty as football or anything like that. Or, you know, politics. You wouldn't use such harsh language given those contexts, would you? No. They're not as important. I'll give you a, a silly example. Can you imagine if you walked into I don't know, Cafe Nero over in, in, um, in Earlsford and you said, can I have an Americano? I don't drink coffee, but I'm just making this up. Yeah, can I have an Americano, please? And the lady behind the counter suddenly gave you a mocker. And you said to her, you are eternally condemned. It would be disproportionate, wouldn't it? It'd be so over the top kind of language because it's a petty misunderstanding about a coffee, a hot drink. (coughs) The gravity of what Paul says here, the strength of his language should give us a little clue about what is at stake in what he's speaking about. It's a matter of life and death, eternally. Well, with such high stakes, Paul begins his letter by making it clear that there is truth and there is error. And these things are not to be confused. There is the true gospel and there's a different gospel, to use the language uh, of the second half 
uh, of uh, our reading today. So there are two, two simple points today, they're on your sheets. We're going to look very quickly now at the true gospel and a different gospel. So firstly, the true gospel. Why don't we cast our eyes down to chapter 1, verse 1, and look at verse 2 as well, just to refresh uh, what we've been looking at. Paul, an apostle sent not from man nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Well, I've, I've got here just actually um, a letter that uh, I sent to someone. I won't show you who it was. Um, but I sent this one recently to, to uh, a friend, actually, one of my old uh, lecturers at um, Theological College. And at the top of the letter is my address. As a formal writing in this country would say, you put your address at the top, don't you? And then generally we, we write who we're going to send the letter to, as I've done here, to Mike. And uh, then you get the body of the letter, and then there's a kind of a, uh, an ending, isn't it? You Yours most warmly in him, and then I put my name at the bottom and I signed it once I printed it and so on. But the convention, as you see here in the letter to the Galatians, was that the sender would put their name, but also their title at the beginning of the letter. You get that right at the beginning, don't you? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle. An apostle. Literally that means he's a sent one. Or he's a, a commissioned messenger. And we see later in the verse that he is sent by, who? Look, Jesus Christ and God the Father. Therefore, do you see the qualitative difference between my letter and the letter that is before you to the Galatians? Uh, The letter before you is commissioned, is from someone who's commissioned and empowered by Jesus Christ himself, the resurrected Lord Jesus and God his Father. One is a messenger, one is a message, that's my letter, from a regular kind of human bloke. One comes from the living God. One letter is just humble opinion. And one letter is revelation from God. And Paul clarifies that with his statement in verse 1. He says, it's sent not from men, nor by man. Do you see that little phrase? Sent not from men, nor by man. His calling to to be an apostle came not from men. That is, the the ultimate calling for for all of us involved in ministry, like Jesus, uh, sorry, is from Jesus. Likewise with, with anyone who's involved in ministry. We respond to Jesus through his word. Our ministry is not from men. But if we're appointed, let's say the elders of this church, uh, some of us serve in that way. How We serve by men or through men. That is, as an elder in this church or as an employee of the church, we were appointed by other men. We prayed, we deliberated, and then we appointed. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's making a massive distinction here. That his appointment, he's saying, wasn't anything to do with anyone else at all. Sent not from men, nor by man. No other apostles commissioned him. And we'll see next week how isolated he felt um, in the first years of his ministry as he preached amongst the Gentiles. But Paul was commissioned and taught by the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hence why he mentions Jesus' resurrection at the end of verse 1. So the apostles had and have absolute authority. 
That's the point he's making right at the beginning of his letter. I have authority to send you this letter from the words from the living God, essentially. Anything written by an apostle, therefore, in the gospel accounts of the letters, they are scripture. That is, they are from God. But what is this letter about? Let's go on to verse 3 if we can. Have a look at that. It begins, there, doesn't it? Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is about, and it's a nice little summary, it is a greeting as well, but it's, the letter is very well summarized by grace and peace. Grace, the unmerited kindness of God, and, and his shalom, his peace, is there too. But Paul is taking a traditional greetings of both Greek and Jewish culture, and he's using them to show that the grace and peace available uh, to us as, as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately and supremely from God the Father, and it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a moment. Now, Paul uses the title Christ, a little, little aside. He uses the title Christ more frequently in this letter than in any other letter in the New Testament. And that tells us, I think, that he's keen to let us, the readers, know about the free salvation that is offered through Jesus and particularly through his death on the cross as the Christ, the anointed one who would save people from their sins as he died in our place. Verse 4, look at it. It makes the gospel message of grace and peace clear. He says it's about Jesus Christ. Look, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel message that Paul writes to the Galatians is good news because it offers forgiveness for our sin, for our rebellion, our turning our back against God, away from God. Forgiveness comes as our sins are punished on Jesus. He takes the justice that we deserve on himself. We'll look at this more and more over the coming weeks, especially in the middle two chapters of this letter. But it's the central message of the Christian faith. And Paul wants to start this letter right at the front saying, this is, this is the main thing. This is the true gospel. It's a message of grace. That is unmerited kindness. That, the key there is it, it's not earned. It's a message of peace. Because for those with faith in the one who gave himself, peace is restored before God for eternity. And it's a message about a rescue, as we'll come to now. Rescue from our sins and the justice that they deserve. But it's also about another rescue. Look down at verse 4 there. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And what Paul is doing there is he's beginning to set up an argument here against the false teachers who have infiltrated the churches he loved in Galatia and the churches he set up. And he's saying here that what is formed in humanity, whatever ideology or way of thinking we create in our places of work, in our relationships, whatever we think and make up, wherever it is, Paul is saying here, to some degree, our thinking, our living, our way of life will always be infected 
by our sin. That's why he uses that very harsh term, the present evil age. Paul says, he's saying that that fundamentally, as we look around in our lives, in the systems of of living that we, that we, we, we move and live around, they are fundamentally flawed. Even our intuitions as human beings, the way we think, the way we feel, is, is going to be naturally contrary to the way that God <coughs> thinks. Well, it's a big message, isn't it? This true gospel. It's a message from God, commissioned through the apostles by the risen Lord Jesus, concerning Jesus' death for our sins, But, in this last point in verse 4, it brings about a complete transformation for the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus. They're transformed from belonging to the world to being delivered out of it for a new life with a new purpose, living for an eternity where we no longer will be infected by our sin, by our rebellion against God. That is the true gospel. And that is what saves It saves us for an eternity with God. But there is another piece of news. It's not necessarily a gospel. Because it's not very good news. But there's another piece of news that Paul will not agree to disagree with, if you like, in that very British way. And here we get to our second point. There is a different gospel that is being peddled around the churches in Galatia. A different gospel. John Flavel, the great Puritan writer, um, once wrote this, How dangerous it is to join anything of our own to the righteousness of Christ. How dangerous it is to join anything of our own to the righteousness of Christ, to the gospel of Christ. And that is exactly what has happened here in Galatia. Look at Paul's response. Look at some of the words he used. He's astonished. He's angered. Um, He's distressed as people are adding to the true gospel of the righteousness of Christ being offered to us through his death on the cross. Which in effect, if you add to the gospel, you are actually taking away from the gospel. Look at verse 6 with me. Follow follow with you can. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really... No gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. What is this different gospel that Paul mentions in verse 6? Well, we're not going to really, uh, because the text doesn't really get there until next week and a couple of weeks after. We're not going to really see what exactly it is. But firstly, make this point, it's different. And at that point... There should be alarm bells going off in every Christian's head here. It's different. Paul calls it a different gospel. It's different. Alarm bells. It's not the true gospel. It's a different gospel. Alarms. Anything that strays from that apostolic message, that true gospel, anything that strays from that is, you might say, heresy. It is not from God But you see, that opinion is not universally accepted, as you well know. Very sadly, many churches in this country would state what they believe. In in, in terms like this, you know, 
we feel God is telling us this at this time in our lives. Or they would say things like this. Let us see what seems reasonable to us in our present age. You get the point? Verse 4. People want to see what is reasonable to them in the present evil age, if you like, from which we've been delivered. You see, the point is, it's not the best place to look, is it, really? People are so often making their subjective feelings, Lord, King, the thing that directs them rather than Jesus, Lord and King, through his word. Tim Keller, in that really helpful book, warns us of the consequences of that way of thinking. Uh, he says this, a difference in your understanding of doctrine, a, rem- a move from the true gospel, essentially, leads to a different understanding of who Jesus is. And that means it's questionable whether you really know him at all. There is only one gospel. Verse 7 is pretty clear on that. Any other message is not from Jesus, and therefore it is a dangerous message. And the warning should be from this passage certainly that any other message, if it's not from Jesus, you've no longer got a saviour. But there are people distorting the message of the true gospel. They were throwing people into confusion. They were perverting the gospel of Christ. I guess the application for us is look out. Look out for and and know the true gospel. Be discerning in it. Anything different, if any alarm bell goes off in your mind, be warned. But what really saddens Paul is the fact that the Galatians are so quickly, you see that? That's what really gets him. They are so quickly turning to this different gospel. Now, we live in a place, London, it's a great city, isn't it? But there are so many different views around us, probably more in this city than any other city in this country. Maybe Europe, I don't know. You will know, I guess, from workplaces, certainly those living around, you'll know a bunch of Muslims, I'm sure. I hope you're good friends with them, that you love them. I guess you might know a number of Hindus or Sikhs or, you know, I guess a number of Jews, and atheists, materialists, if you want to get into kind of other kind of worldviews. And many, many, many sorts of people with different messages everywhere. The point is that that's nothing, there's nothing new about that. It was the case for Paul as well. But see, the thing is, here in Galatia, Paul finds it utterly astonishing that people are so quickly forgetting the true gospel that brings freedom and the forgiveness of sins. He's saying you're moving to another way of thinking so quickly. He's astonished. But if you think that what you are hearing is just a different kind of, oh yeah, that we're quite similar, and it's a different shade of grey, you might say. It's not so black and white like Paul is stating, but you know, it's a slight you know, upgrade. Have you had your upgrades recently on your phones? I went from iOS 6 to iOS 7. It was a very exciting day. And at that point, you know, perhaps the Galatians are thinking, oh, well, it's just like a gospel upgrade. We could, we could do Let's download what these guys are saying. and let, Let's work with that, if shall we? Shall we do that? Well, Paul makes it clear in his strongest words of this opening section. Look at verse 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. 
as we've already said. So now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, the true gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Now I think you and I hear language like that and um, we kind of shudder, don't we really? Why? Often we think wrongly that to be gentle is kind of to take no stand. To be humble is to kind of stutter along and, and not be so sure about things. But Paul and Jesus, I think, so brilliantly combine both gentleness and humility with that uncompromising certainty. And you hear that, don't you, I think, in verse 8 and 9. Could it be any clearer and uncompromising? But you have to then say, because many people would in our culture, is that a disproportionate response? It isn't if what Paul is defending is the gospel that brings eternal life for those with faith in Christ Jesus. See, what is at stake is is what really matters. If you understand this, that this is the true gospel, that what is on offer to you today is being delivered from your rebellion against God. For all those times where you've essentially said, stuff off God, I want to live my way. If you realise that what is at stake is that you can have the punishment that actually all of that rebellion deserves and you can have it placed on Jesus Christ on the cross and you can receive his perfect life. It can be counted as yours and so you can live for eternity with God knowing peace and eternal joy. If you realise that isn't what is at stake, is that a disproportionate response for peddling a false gospel? No. This is a matter of life, eternal life, and eternal death. This isn't just a a different opinion, a different kind of shade of grey. It's a completely different message that these teachers were teaching. It's a completely different gospel, and it leads to a completely different destiny. It causes people to turn from Christian freedom that we'll look at in the later chapters, chapters 5 and 6, from Christian joy and Christian, the eternity that Christians know with God. And that is why Paul uses such unfettered language. Do you believe Paul? Do you believe God's word right before you? Do you believe the true gospel of grace or are you beginning to slide? Adding something, as the false teachers were doing so in Galatia. Now, as I said, we we haven't looked at what they have been adding. That will come week after week, in in weeks to come. But they were adding to the gospel. They were trying to subvert the true gospel. But with this big dollop of irony, Paul sums up what it it is to be a true servant of Jesus. Now, why does he do that in verse 10 to finish? Because in defending himself as the true apostle of Jesus Christ, he's defending the message of the true apostle of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 10, just to finish very quickly. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. To put it simply, who is Paul trying to please? He's saying, I can't do both. None of us can do both. You're either a people pleaser or you're a God pleaser. 
a servant of Christ or a popular person amongst your peers. And that is not to say that Christians go out of their way to be the most unpopular people at work or wherever it may be. You know, no, definitely not. Please do not mishear me. But what Paul is doing, he's kind of pointing out an inevitability really, saying if you proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ and make him known, it will not bring wide-scale popularity. Paul is defending himself, and in so doing, he defends the gospel message he has taught. He is not teaching this message to please himself or any other man. He's, he's doing it to please God, to proclaim God and the salvation that he offers through Jesus. This is the only gospel, the saving gospel, and the gospel that if you add anything to it, is no gospel at all. Let's conclude very quickly. I think there are many things that um, we as stubborn human beings need to be willing to be compromised and compromise about. Someone serving us coffee that we didn't order, for example. The style of music we sing in church, that's sometimes a big one. Those are secondary things, if you like. One out in the world, one here in church. But Paul shows us here that there is one thing. It's the primary thing that none of us can compromise on. And it's the true gospel. If we add to or dilute the true gospel, it is no gospel at all. And as verse 6 tells us, if we do that, we'll be deserting the one who's actually called us. I'm going to finish with, with words which I, I found profoundly helpful at, my, at the beginning of my studies at Galatians back in uh, August. I turned to Martin Luther, the great reformer, and his Galatians commentary. And in the preface yeah, of that commentary, he writes these words. I hope they're a good summary of not only what we've been listening to today, of the, the true gospel and those teaching a different gospel, but I think it is also a launch pad of what we're going to be looking at uh, in the coming weeks. He says this. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. That is trying to earn ourselves merit before God. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. And if you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And what he's saying is that you can either cling to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings grace and peace to you, or you're on your own. Any other gospel is no gospel at all. It's either true gospel, or you're on your own. And we'll see that more and more as the weeks progress. Let's pray as we close. Some words from the great old hymn that we sang on Tuesday night. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Third verse says this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Heavenly Father, we, many of us here as Christians, will 
belonging as we've heard um, your word being taught and you've worked through your spirit in these words and in our hearts. We long now to come before you and just delight in you because of this true gospel message that you have given your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has on himself taken our sins to rescue us from their punishment and the present evil age. Lord, we thank you so much for him. And we come to him with nothing, recognizing it is only in him that we can gain any kind of salvation. But there are many people, I guess there are some people here who who are not Christians, and please, Heavenly Father, work in their hearts. Help them to be honest in themselves and before you. Do they know you as Lord and Saviour? Lord, please help uh, anyone here who would uh, long to investigate these things more, to be able to ask more questions, to understand how Jesus took on himself our sins and rescues us. Lord, this is a wonderful gospel. It is the true gospel and there is no other gospel. Help us cling to it. Help us proclaim it and help us to live in the light of it, we pray. Amen.